0: We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this morning we're looking at verses 12 through 19. The title is The Greatest Reversal. This will be part one, I think, in at least a two-part series on the resurrection. But we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Please turn with me uh, to verse 12, which says this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, is if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. When we think about uh, this passage, and I think about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, actually I think about that whole period, say the two-week period from uh, the week before his death and the week after his death, um, you think about some of the statements that were made by various people and how the contrast between them, the the great reversal in statements. I think of... um, You have this massive crowd a week before the crucifixion saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at another moment, they're shouting out, crucify him. You have Peter who says with all kinds of vigor, I will lay down my life for you. The same guy says, I do not know the man. You think of the chief priests who said, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. And later they said, we have no king but Caesar. What a statement from the Jewish high priest. And then you have uh, Pilate who says, I find no guilt in him. And then he says, shall I crucify your king? Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. Jesus also prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there's Thomas who said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my hand in to his side, I will not believe. And then later when given an opportunity, he says, my Lord and my God. But there, there can be no greater contrast really than that between a dead corpse being placed into a tomb and a resurrected Christ who lives and who is walking around and who is appearing to hundreds after his resurrection. Uh, I I just want to keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn back with me to John chapter 20. I I just want to really to kind of get our our mindset here. What would it have been like on that day? You know... uh, I don't think we we fully can imagine the devastation. We have in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John there, and said to them, uh, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where he, where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. You love it that John's humble enough, that he doesn't mention his own name, calls himself the other disciple, but then also says he ran faster um, uh, than Peter, and came to the tomb first, And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrapping lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. So Simon doesn't even stop. He just, boom, right in there. I won. Uh, And then entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrapping, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking, supposing him to be the gardener? She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and you your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. I think about sometimes uh, uh, an account that I heard from Stephen Linetti, who uh, was a missionary to the Taliabo uh, in uh, Indonesia, a remote island in I- Indonesia, an uh, 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 unreached people group who had never heard the gospel and uh, he used to be on staff here at this church uh, he 's a friend of of grace church and, and the Lnetdies were with some other missionaries and they began to teach the Bible to people who had never heard the Bible ever and They decided to start in genesis, and so they told the story and and the story of how The world was created for people who had never heard about it, never known about it. An island group of people, and they were amazed about learning about the Creator God. And then they heard about sin and the separation between a perfect relationship between God and man. And then they learned, even in Genesis, that there would be a descendant of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And so, as the story was told, week after week, Months going on, meeting with them on a regular basis, translating stories into their language, teaching them to read and write, and then telling them the story of uh, the Messiah, the one who's to come, and uh, and uh, they they, uh, they they kept on thinking that the Messiah was a character before christ like like maybe it's abraham it's got to be abraham or maybe it's moses he's a deliverer right and then uh, you know they went through abraham and isaac and jacob and joseph and moses and then king david maybe it's king david and then they learned that it's uh, someone in in the line of king david okay well who who could that be and then uh, they were thinking well maybe it's maybe it's jesus when they get to the new testament they learn of jesus and they then and they don't know how it ends And so they're talking about it outside of the meetings. I know it's Jesus. And when Jesus is crucified and they learn that story, they're weeping. People are crying, visibly shaken, distraught in church because they thought for sure it was Jesus. And when they preached on the resurrection, people in those tribes stood up and cheered and clapped and celebrated. And some were saying, I knew it was Jesus. It's just the sweetest thing to think about um, this this, uh, reading it fresh for the first time. And as we come to this, it's hard for us to think about those who, who have no clue about the resurrection. And they don't even think it's important. And there are liberal theologians who deny the resurrection. And in the early church, in Corinth, there were those who were denying the resurrection. We saw that in verse twelve. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead Now? Plato had taught much many years prior to that centuries before that 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 um, uh, the in in Greek philosophy. The body is evil; it's wicked. The spirit is good, and so therefore, the body is the spirit is trapped in the body, and so the only time you're ever really good is when you leave the body, and so you have are free from it, and now you're good. This this was this is this is uh, Greek philosophy about the spirit and the body, and that seems to have infiltrated that church because there were some who were teaching in the church that there was no resurrection. And uh, and we have some in our own day. Here's a here's a quote from a book called Resurrection, Myth or Reality. It's by a bishop from the Episcopal Church. It, it saddens me that somebody who calls himself a bishop in a church would write this. But he says this quote, A deceased man did not walk out of his grave physically alive three days after his execution by crucifixion. Elsewhere he writes... Jesus was placed into a common grave, covered over in a very short time. Only some unmarked bones remained. Even bones were gone before too long. Natural Nature rather efficiently reclaims its own resources, End quote. So there are those who try to explain away that, that, that there are some who believe that those who said they saw Jesus were just hallucinating. It was a figment of their na- imagination, must have been quite a hallucination because he not only appeared to the apostles, but in 1 Corinthians 15 6, we learned that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Not only that, but according to Acts chapter 1, Jesus continued to appear to a number of people over a 40 day period. He records, and we saw these last week, Thomas the Doubter. James, Jesus' own half brother, who did not believe in him while he was alive, but believed in him after he saw him raised from the dead. Um, And not least of all, though he said he was least of all, is Paul, who was on a mission to kill Christians until he saw this apparent hallucination. Um, It's quite an amazing hallucination, if that's what it was. But I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I find it I find I find that the scripture is accurate, that everything in it, I've spent my whole life studying this book and teaching it. And if I found it to be inconsistent, if I found it to be full of lies, my faith would be gone. But it is the very word of God. I I can believe no other about it. And the Bible teaches that not only did Christ rise from the dead, but every believer will have a bodily resurrection. Job 19.26, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. 1 Thessalonians four verse sixteen. for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And when Paul preached about a future bodily resurrection, he met opposition. We know this because in Acts chapter 17, when he was speaking to the men at the Oropagus in Athens, it says in Acts 17, 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They sneered at him. They they couldn't, in, in their mindset, what, a resurrection? And so... Paul deals with those in the church who, for whatever reason, doubted the resurrection or denied the resurrection. And he essentially says you cannot call yourself a Christian and deny the resurrection. And in verses 12 through 19, we're going to look at two overarching reasons why true Christians cannot deny the resurrection two overarching reasons. And the first one, they're actually both found in verse 14. If you look at verse 14, the first reason is our preaching is in vain. And the second one is your faith is in vain. Those are the two overarching ideas or reasons that he gives uh, that you cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection. Let's look at the first one, verses 12 through 15. Our preaching is in vain. It says in verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Notice that in verse 12, it doesn't say if someone preaches that Christ was raised from the dead. What it says is if Christ is preached, because you cannot preach Christ Without the resurrection. The resurrection is part and parcel with who Christ is. It was Spurgeon who said the silver thread of resurrection runs through all the blessings from regeneration onward to eternal glory and binds them all together. You remove that silver thread of resurrection, which touches every doctrine, every truth about salvation, everything. I mean, you think about. The divinity of Christ finds its surest proof in the resurrection, Romans 1, 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Christ's sovereignty depends on his resurrection. Uh, For to this end, Christ died, Romans 14, verse 9, for to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. He is sovereign. He is Lord over all. Uh, Our justification hangs on Christ's resurrection. Justification is being declared righteous. And in Romans 4.25, it says, "...who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification." Our very regeneration, that is being born again, being made new, becoming a new creation, depends on his resurrection. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then our future resurrection relies upon Christ's resurrection Romans 8 verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you cannot preach Christ without the resurrection. That's not Christ. You cannot preach the gospel without the resurrection. Why do we call the gospel good news? Who can tell me that? Who can tell me why do we call the gospel good news? Because it is. Because it is. Okay. It is. So, what is the good news? Death has, no sting. death has no sting. Right. But the good news is predicated by bad news. And the bad news is that sin does have a sting. The wages of sin is death. And so, Without the gospel, the gospel is only bad news. You cannot preach the gospel without the resurrection. And so not only that, but if, if Christ wasn't really raised from the dead, it can't really be preached. Christ can't be preached because all the apostles and all the witnesses were liars. Liars. And and Paul points that out. Look at verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So we're not talking about being mistaken here. We're talking about willful, organized deception, liars, phonies. The word found in verse 15 Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses. It means to be caught out or to be detected it 's what you do when you find in your kids rooms candy wrappers under the bed they 're found they 're found out they 're detected it's it's your wife doesn 't know you left them there under their bed no but um, <laughs> um it 's ridiculous, really. some liberals again, even in our own day, try to preach a gospel without the resurrection and a Christ without the resurrection and they they make excuses saying well the the disciples were just naive they thought they saw him it's it's not possible leon morris says this quote it cannot be said that they were honest men who in sincerity gave advice they thought to be good though it is now shown to be not good as they imagined christianity is not a system of good advice And preachers had not simply told people of a good way to live. They had said that something happened. God raised up Christ. But if Christ is not raised, then that was all a lie. It was a sham. And because of the resounding consistency that we have throughout Scripture and all the eyewitness testimony, they would have had to have such a conspiracy that was so ironclad tight that they get away with lying better than politicians do. Because there are people today who try to lie and cover it up, and it always comes out. So we have this, this, this idea here that preaching would be in vain. The idea that you would come here and listen to preaching about Christ with no resurrection, it would be meaningless. But secondly, a second overarching idea here. Is that your faith would also be in vain? Your belief, your faith would it would be in vain. It says in verse 16, "For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Verse 16 through 19, focus in on what was said at the end of verse 14. "Your faith is also empty." two different words there for empty, worthless." The word "empty" means vain, fruitless, void of effect, to no purpose, without result. In verse uh, later, in verse is it seventeen? Yeah, your faith is worthless. It's it's uh, fruit. It's fruitless. It's futile. It's useless. It's of no value. And the gospel message, if it's a sham, then your faith is also worthless. And. Not only that, not only does it mean you've believed in a lie, but you've chosen the harder way to live. You've chosen the road less traveled, the more difficult one, if the gospel is a sham. I mean, listen to Paul's life as a Christian, 2 Corinthians 11. Verses 24 to 28, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Probably shouldn't talk about that, but I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been consistently on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked because besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. It is a difficult life being a Christian because we, the world, does not want to hear the news about Christ. They don't want to hear about resurrection because the bad news is if they don't give up their sin, they won't have life, and so they don't want to hear that from us, and so we can expect persecution. We are rejected, despised, and outcasts from the world. I think of all the martyrs who allowed themselves to be murdered, burned alive at the stake, some of them, because they would not deny their faith in Christ Jesus. The Covenanters uh, in the 1700s, um, and, and prior to that, uh, 1555, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, tied to the stake, and the fire was being let. uh, lit beneath their, their feet. And as the flames are coming up, Latimer shouted out to Ridley, quote, "'Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, "'and play the man. "'We shall this day light such a candle "'by God's grace in England "'as I trust will never be put out.'" Who does that? But if it's a lie, if it's a sham... Their suffering was in vain. Their faith was in vain. Not only that, but they never were forgiven of their sins. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, look at verse 17 again. If, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worth, worthless and you are still in your sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But if Christ Jesus did not rise from the grave, then we're still deserving the wages for sin, which is death, eternal death. I'm often reminded of uh, the story. One of, one of I remember reading this book and just, just picturing this story and just pausing from a book by Jay Adams called From Forgiven to Forgiving, in which he talks about the unexpurgated version of your life story. He says, "Imagine that you're sitting in a movie theater. That you weren't here today, but you came to see the movies. And uh, you're sitting. You come in, and it's packed, and the movie theater is crowded, and people are standing around in the aisles, outside, looking in through doorways. And and uh, and there's only one seat open, and it's right in the middle. And so you come all the way down, and you sit in the middle, and as you do, you start to recognize you know everybody. I mean, all these people from your life, their parents, friends, family, aunts and uncles, people you went to school with, they all seem to be there. And and there you're sitting there, and the lights go dim, and the the, the comes on and it says your name at this is your movie and it says the unexpurgated version of your life story and you lean over to the person next to you and you say what does unexpurgated mean and they say it means the whole thing everything you've ever done everything let's suppose this movie would be able to out hollywood hollywood and there in you know he says in his book technicolor but i think we would say in high definition right you have Let's say everything you've ever thought, the things you've allowed yourself to wallow in in self-pity, the sins you would have liked to have committed if you thought you could have gotten away with them, the things you said under your breath and in your thought life about other people in the room. Let's suppose all of that is going to be displayed before this crowd of people. Would you stay? Would you stand up and take a bow afterwards? Or would you crawl out of there on your hands and knees? You say, well, I'm glad there's not a film of my life going to be displayed before you know, a crowd like that. It's much bigger than that. It's before the entire universe. It says in Luke chapter 12, verse 2, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When we think about your life story, the unexpurgated version, this is why you need Jesus Christ. Because he can take that film and destroy it and pay for all of your sin in full so that when the film of your life gets shown before the entire universe, it's Christ's life being played and your name. And God looks at you and sees Christ's life and he says, well done my good and faithful servant. Well done. This is is our greatest need is, is forgiveness. But if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, you are still in your sin. Verse 18 means that those who've already died are also still in their sin and suffering in eternal punishment. It says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He uses the aorist tense here. It's the default past tense. But there's a, uh, there, he's talking about the whole, their whole life is gone. It's over. It's not perishing. It's gone. We use the term perish to describe something that's gone slightly off. At least my wife does. Why do we have this fruit? Oh, it's just perished a little bit. But, but that's not what this means. You can't perish a little bit. The whole thing is gone. It's killed. It's ruined. It's a devastating blow to Christianity if Christ hasn't risen from the grave because one of the things that motivates us to live lives that are different is that we have hope that what we go through on earth cannot be compared with the future glory which shall be revealed in us, Romans eight eighteen that that we have a hope that the world can't understand because we see eternity and we understand the riches of his goodness towards us and the blessings which he's given us in Christ and his resurrection. So we sing with confidence words like that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, he will hold me fast. But you take that resurrection out of there and there's no faith becoming sight. All former believers, all Old Testament saints eternally punished. Hebrews 11 would not be a chapter of faithful, but a chapter of fools. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, all fools if Christ is not raised from the grave. And that's why he says in verse 19 that Christians should be pitied. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of most men to be pitied. There's something in the way that he writes here. um, he, He leaves out some verbs that they put in in English, and he just uses adjectives. For example, in verse 14... He says, preaching, vain. Faith, vain. He uses that adjective and the noun together. There's no verb. They put it in our English translations to smooth it out and because it's implied, but it was a way that Paul wrote. Um, and, and towards the end there, in verse 19, <clears throat> it's not a verb, it's not an infinitive, to be pitied. It is an adjective, pitiable. And it's placed near the front, which in Greek tells us there's emphasis on this, pitiable, pitiable, he says, Christians, pitiable. And then towards the end, he actually says, we are, we are pitiable. Because we have hoped and trusted and believed in Christ. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, then he is dead, and since we preach that Acts 4:12 says, "Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then preaching is pointless, believing is profitless, apostles are phonies, forgiveness is powerless, the dead are perished, and all Christians should be pitied." And for many people in this world, they say, "So what? I don't like preaching. People will say, don't preach to me, right? Or they don't really like the gospel message. If they did, their lives would be different. They don't care about the apostles. Most, many people around this world don't see a need for forgiveness. They only care about this life. They only care about themselves. And they think you're a fool for believing otherwise. Though they might be kind to you on the outside, they believe, they don't believe in a resurrection, but for those of us who know and have hope, we are grateful. And we, 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 I'm sorry that we're not going um, to finish today and go further in this chapter, but I, I have to just go to the first few words of verse 20, which says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the big transformation. That's the big reversal. He gives us this portrait of what this world would be like if Christ had not been raised from the dead. And next week when we come back, we're going to look at what it, what it looks like because he has been raised from the dead. That so or that but now in verse 20 means that preaching of the word of God is not pointless, but it has a purpose. Pro, uh, believing is not profitless, but it has a promise. Apostles are not phonies, but the proclaimers of the truth. Forgiveness is not powerless, but powerful. Death is not perishing, but promising. And Christians don't need to be pitied, but we need to pray for those who are perishing. And I wanted to spend some time here at the end because I knew that I wasn't going to get to verse 20 and the following verses. And I was having discussions with some people last week, and when we think about, this premise that Paul has now, for 19 verses, been, been honing on on this idea that there are some who say that there is no resurrection, and, and so there, there may be some who say, well, sometimes I doubt. It's hard to have assurance of salvation. So I want to spend a few minutes here at the end and talk about assurance of salvation. And I want you to help me with this. So I want you to tell me what are some of the causes for doubt? What are some things that go on in people's lives that cause them to doubt their salvation? Yes. Sin. sin. Sure. Sin. You've got concealed sin or sin that's not being dealt with. That would be one. Okay. What's, what's another one? Yes. Okay, so, <clears throat> so, so in this case, you're saying that if, you're, if you didn't have genuine faith and you've fallen away, right, you should doubt your salvation. And we would amen that. And the same thing with sin. If you have concealed sin, it's very possible that you're not saved. And it's good to say, I wonder if I'm saved. I want to deal with that. But what are some other things? What are some other things that happen in your life that cause you to doubt your salvation? Yes. Yes. Okay, going by feelings, right? It's almost a childish way of believing, right? It's it's not a childlike faith; it's a childless, child, uh, sorry, childish faith. Childish, childish. Um, it's that kind of faith because it is there's spiritual immaturity, and you're you're not interested in the word; you're not on a steady diet of the word, but you're actually just you know grabbing onto. Uh, feelings like a child would yes okay seeing those you respect walk away from the faith which which could fall under um, it could fall under comparing yourself to others Um, and it could it could fall under like wow if they I always thought they were so much more holier you know put together as a Christian than I am and if they're not walking in the faith what about me Okay, yes, in the back. Not having fruit in your life, uh, yeah, okay, not having fruit in your life. So again, that would probably be under, um, you know, childish faith, like an immature faith. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right, Chris, uh, trials. So challenging times, outward attack even sometimes. Yes. You don't see answers to your prayers. Okay, so yeah, that could be a tr- going through a difficult time as well, and and God's using that refining time, but you can't see what He's doing, and you have to trust. Yes. False teaching. Yeah, false teaching. So 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 uh, buying into to false teaching. Yes. Yeah, works-based, which again would be comparing yourself to others, kind of like, like oh, you know, it's a, it's like you've got this, this, your swimming pool in your backyard, and your neighbor's got a swimming pool in his backyard, and you're looking at self-righteousness, and you have like five drops of self-righteousness in your pool, and he only has two drops in his pool. So you're like twice as righteous as he is in your own mind. But the reality is you dive into either pool, you're going to die, right? So... You start to look at your own works, your own self-righteousness, and you compare yourself to others. There's one more that I was looking at, and, and, and yes? Yeah, that's it. Ding, ding, ding. Well, well, well done. Uh, so I was fishing for that one. Uh, so uh, childhood conversion, maybe. Like, like uh, was it genuine or not? I don't know, I was a kid. Sometimes with young people, when you, when you come to faith in a Christian family at a young age, it's difficult to tell whether you're actually trusting in the Lord or whether you're doing it to please your parents. And your behavior doesn't seem to change all that much because those who are people pleasers sometimes look like very obedient Christians. So I have five C's. They causes for doubt. These are the five C's of doubt. You ready? These are the causes or the roots for doubt. Childhood conversion, childish faith, concealed sin, challenging times, and comparison to others. So let me try and I'm gonna give you them again and I'm gonna just walk through some of the verses and talk a little bit about it. And if you have questions, we'll take those at the end. Childhood conversion. How do you tell whether or not you are really saved if you were converted as a child or you're not sure when you were converted. Okay? Well, you don't need to know the day or the hour and you don't place your trust in a decision. You place your trust in Christ. But one of the questions you should be asking is what do you love? Because 2 Corinthians 5:17 says if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new has come. So, do you love Christ? Do you love the scriptures? Do you love the church? Do you have a heart for the lost? Because sometimes even a young child will, not, will say all those things, but it's not, they don't really start to experience it until they're put in an environment where their faith is tested. And so what do you love? And 2 Corinthians 5.17 would be something, if you're wondering about your conversion, has there been a change? Do you see that fruit? Because that's not natural. It's not natural to want to come here and and come early to Steadfast and listen to a message and then go over to that building and and go and listen to a message. It's not normal. We are abnormal by the grace of God. And then, so if your conversion is a question, what what do you love? Secondly, your childish faith or spiritual immaturity. If If you're spiritually immature, if you have a childish faith, then you need a more biblical understanding of the doctrine of salvation because the Bible clearly teaches that you cannot lose your salvation. Romans eight thirty eight and 39, "...for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So there's this idea of that, you know, and what we talked about earlier, our own future resurrection, our regeneration, our justification, they're all tied. So study the doctrine of salvation. What the Bible teaches about salvation, that is how you grow in maturity. And that will bring you more assurance. Um, So if you have childhood conversion, what do you love? Childish faith. uh, Do you understand the doctrine of salvation? Can you grow more in that? Concealed sin. Romans 6.14 says, sin shall not have dominion over you. 1 Corinthians 6 has a list of people who are identified by their sins and then later says, such were some of you. And so... If you, you have to realize that sometimes it's hard to differentiate between um, a life-dominating sin that characterizes you and a transformed life that is sliding back and flirting with a former or a, a life-dominating sin. And you need to look at that and you need to say, well, you know what? The Scripture says that for believers, I should not be characterized by this. And so I am going to renounce sin, turn from sin, repent from sin, and it was never meant to be done alone. This is why we are in a church. This is why we have fellowship groups and Bible studies and real genuine relationships so that you can have prayer and accountability and sharpening one another and encouraging one another and not relying on your own strength, but relying on the Lord's strength, but also being a part of a body that is encouraging you and spurring you on. And also believing and understanding that the word teaches that it shall not have dominion over you. And until you actually come to the understanding that you can be free of any life-dominating sin, and though we will all struggle against sin for the rest of our life, there is no one to sin that defines you for the rest of your life because you are defined by Christ if you are in him. And until you believe that, you will struggle with that, and it will cause you to doubt your salvation. And if you have not truly repented of your sin and turned and trusted Christ as Lord, then you're not saved, and you should question your salvation. But if you are saved, you will find peace and assurance in understanding that you can battle against sin And also the fact that you hate your sin, not just hate your sin being exposed to others, but you hate your sin, is a measure of assurance because unbelievers don't care about their sin. And we see that more and more because the grossest sins are becoming displayed before the whole world in social media and and, and in this daily conversation. Like it's no big deal. So we have childhood conversion, childish faith, Concealed sin, challenging times. Those are trials or even outward attack. Surviving trials increases your faith. This is how we deal with them. Job 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what we find is that When you go through trials, God uses those not only to refine you and make you more like him, but as you see that him him bringing you through those trials and the transformation and becoming more Christ-like, that should also help you to realize, hey, I am being sanctified and God doesn't sanctify those who are not his. And then comparison to others one of the keys really, when you start and you find yourself, and this is, this is tempting for all of us is to look at other people and say, oh, well, there they are. Well, well, there I am, or I'm here or they're there. I'm I'm way up here. They're down here, you know, or, oh, wow. They were so, you know, it's always a battle. It's all, you always lose when you compare yourself to someone else, unless that person is Christ. Because if you compare yourself to Christ then we're all so low that it, there's, no, there, there, there's, there's no putting stepping on someone else to get a higher view because we're all so low. Humility. Do you have humility? Do you have a love for the church? Do you have a heart for the lost? Are you aware of your sinfulness? Proverbs 22, 4, humility is the fear of the Lord and its wages are riches and honor and life. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish Selfishness of vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. So I, I wanted to talk some and, and take some time just to close and talk about that. We've got four minutes left. Any questions? Yes. Uh huh. I'm sorry. Isaiah yeah. Yeah, and that's good because the word of God, faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. So, yeah, that's that, that's what you were observing. Yes, sir. Great, great. Yes. What was the verse that you said for the concealed sin? We're talking about uh, the, this uh, the assurance of salvation. It was uh, Romans six fourteen. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And then also in one Corinthians six, if you look at the transformation there of the Corinthians. All right. If you have other questions, I'm around, but let's go ahead and, and, and close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. We thank you for the joy that we have in you. I pray, Lord, that um, as we think about what this world would be like without a resurrected Christ, that it just grieves us. But when we get to verse 20 and we realize you have been risen, you have been raised from the dead, our hearts are overjoyed. And we are so grateful for the hope that we have in you. And may that transform our lives, strengthen our faith, and may we be an encouragement to those around us who believe in you and a light to a world that desperately needs hope. And so we commit this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.